Last week, for those who came, we had the um, pleasure of that Burmese um, nun and teacher, Sister Dipankara, whose English was quite hard to understand, I think, for a lot of people. She, she actually speaks very good English, but she has a very strong kind of Burmese-Malaysian accent, and she speaks fast, which is strange for a non-native speaker. She kind of races along. Um, but it seemed to me really important just to have a, a, a strong and wonderful teacher come in the form, not of one of the old guys, but of a young um, and uh, very articulate woman. Um, how was that? Any comments or thoughts before we go to tonight's talk? Any reflections? Yeah. To hear something esoteric from another lineage was inspiring, unifying. That the the Rime, which is the Tibetan movement of learning from different traditions to come back to one's own source. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. So you got more the spirit of that that communicated her love and the depth of her practice, which you liked. Yeah. Um, she really comes from a different world than the world of 101. <laughs> and it is refreshing. I mean, it's a little jarring almost. Wow. That's a, this is like... This is like an astrophysicist coming and saying, well, this is what I see in the telescope when I look out there at the stars. You know, I'm, I'm just busy trying to get across the Bay Bridge, you know, in morning traffic. Forget that stars. <laughs> well, I was glad that she came. And um, Next week, I will be in Yucca Valley teaching retreat with Stan Groff, and there will be on Monday night a very wonderful, um, relatively young Tibetan Lama, Name, who's come before, named Zachuji Rinpoche, who speaks pretty good English, and uh, I think is a, both a fine teacher and a, a really good representative in the lineage of the Dalai Lama, the Galupa tradition of practice. So this evening, um, if those of you can recall back uh, several weeks, um, I told a story of the Tibetan healer and physician Yeshe Dandan, the, the, the Tibetan doctor to the Dalai Lama, and how, the, how he listens so deeply to a human body. It's like his fingers become like the CAT scan and the MRI and more than that, kind of listening to the, to the whole energy of a human body. And tonight I'd like to talk about that quality of listening, but more broadly than the human body, really the earth body. Um, and last week we talked about the inner practice um, and the kind of depth of inner meditation. A couple of people came up and said, that's fine, but how does it relate to the outer world uh, and to the concerns we might have for the outer world? And in a way it's like breathing. Spiritual life um, follows our breath. There are times when the breath takes us inward and when the breath expands outward. And our first task, if you will, in coming together is just to still ourselves 
and begin to learn to listen, not with the busyness or complexity of the mind, but to listen more deeply with the heart, with the spirit, with a kind of openness. So one of my favorite stories that I haven't told for some time, would like to tell this evening. Um, I remember when I was young, in the 1950s, and my parents subscribed to Life magazine, and there was a cover story of Life magazine, somewhere around 1955 or 56, um, which had these Indian figures uh, from India walking on the cover, doing this kind of amazing walk. And uh, I was struck by that cover, and then only many, many years later did I really learn its story. Um, and the story is of a man named Vinoba Bhave. And Vinobaji was the chief uh, disciple of Mahatma Gandhi. When Mahatma Gandhi was killed um, at the partition of India in the late 1940s, um, the whole Gandhian movement more or less disbanded. Um, and Indian independence started and Pakistani independence. And people really didn't know what to do after that with Gandhi's teachings. But a year or two later, after the kind of sense of outer freedom died down, you know how it is. You get your outer freedom and then you realize that there's more to freedom than just being able to do whatever you like. <laughs> Turns out that there's a lot to learn about inner freedom. Um, that India had its problems, as every place does. And so they wanted to start the Gandhian spirit again in the new country, and they decided to have a great big gathering of all of Gandhi's disciples, which they asked Vinoba Bali to lead. And Vinoba said no. He said, you can't bring back the past. You can't recreate was it what was around Gandhiji just because you, know, you miss that. And um, let that go, and we have to do something new. But they begged him to please come and help lead them. And finally he agreed. He said, all right, I will come to your conference, but only if you put it off for six months or a year so that I have time to walk there because I need to listen. So they put it off, and Vinoba began to walk on foot with a few friends uh, across India. And he walked from one village to another and would talk and listen. And finally, somewhere in the middle of um, India, he came to a village which was terribly poor, as there are many such villages. And as he was seated in the meeting under a big tree, he said to some of the people who were complaining that they were hungry, that they didn't have enough food for their children, he said, why don't you grow your own food? Instead of waiting and asking where we're going to get food, why don't you just grow it? And they said, we have no land. They said, well, why don't we get land for you? And they said, well, we cannot have land. We are untouchables. Or untouch and untouchables are not allowed to have land in India. And they wrestled with this. Finally, he said, I'll tell you what. When I get back to Delhi, I'll speak with Prime Minister Nehru, who I know, and we'll try to get a law through the new parliament passed granting land to the underclasses of India. And they all went to sleep. But Vinobaji didn't sleep very well. He reflected about it a lot. And in the morning he called them all together to meet again, all these villagers, and he said, you know, I couldn't sleep. 
because I realized even if I could get the law passed, by the time that the land goes from the central government in Delhi to the great big states and provinces and then districts and counties and village headmen of India, each one of those places will take their piece and by the time it gets to you, there'll probably be nothing left. I know how the government works. Alas. He said, I don't know what to do. And he just sat there in the not knowing and in a sadness, really. And all of a sudden, a man stood up and said, how much land do you need? I have land. Well, there are 16 families in this village. They each need five acres. He said, I will give 80 acres. Rather wealthy man, because I have such devotion for Gandhiji and for our new country, I will help. The noble Bobby looked at him and said, no. You must go home first. Talk to your children who will inherit your land, to your wife, and make sure that it's really fine with them that you give away this piece of land. So he went home and came back, said, yes, they give their permission to, and so land was given 80 acres to 16 families. Next day, Vinoba and his friends walked to the village 10 miles from there, equally poor, Heard the same kind of stories, struggles, how to feed ourselves, our children. Don't know what to do. Sat with them, wept with them, prayed. Finally, in the end, he said, let me tell you a story. In this last village, I was speaking of Gandhiji and the new country and what's possible. And this man stood up and he offered 80 acres. And they were so inspired, another man stood up and he said, yes, I too can do this. How many families in this village? Twenty families. Five acres each. I can do. I will offer hundred acres. So Vinobaji sent him back to his family to get permission. He came and the land was offered. And by the time Vinoba Bhavi had walked for six months from where he lived across India to this gathering, he had collected 2,200 acres of land from one village to another. He told the disciples of Gandhi about his journey. And that was the beginning of what was called the Bhutan, Bhutan Indian Land Reform Movement. And for the following almost decade, Vinoba Bhave and his disciples walked on foot through every state and every province and every district in India, and without going through the government for, for those 10 years, they collected almost 14 million acres of land, the largest peaceful land transfer in the century. Um, and all because Vinobaji said, I'm not going to go to your meeting, or if I go, I need to walk and I need to listen. Fourteen million acres of land. And to me, um, the essence of the story is the capacity not just to serve, but to listen first to what needs to be served in a deep way. Now, we live in a society that is for many people filled with 
material wealth and abundance, an incredible information age and all of that, that we experience and are blessed by. Yet it is also probably the first time on earth where the most pressing problems for human beings are also human-caused. Not just natural disasters, but deforestation and incredible pollution and the and change in the ozone layer and the resistant drugs, you know, where I worked with the World Health Organization um, on uh, programs for tropical medicine for malaria and typhoid fever and cholera. And now a lot of the things that we did don't work anymore because um, they've been misused in such a way that there's all these resistant drugs around. And millions of people are dying from malaria that didn't a decade or two ago when we first started doing that work. Um, When human hunger or nuclear and weapons proliferation are still happening when racism and warfare, even though we've had, you know, so many lessons in the need for peace, um, they're still rampant around the earth. Um, And even the stress of consumerism. You know, I um, was talking to my doctor, uh, a physician and acupuncturist that I see, and he had just come into his office and he said, God, the traffic is so terrible out there today. He said, but that's not what disturbs me. He said, it's the patients that come into my office who carry the stress of that traffic and of the traffic of their lives and the speed. He said, I just am seeing more suffering from more people who seem to have everything. This again from the great Persian poet Hafiz. Once, after a hard day's forage, two bears sat together in silence on a beautiful vista, watching the sun go down and feeling deeply grateful for their life. Though, after a while, a thought-provoking conversation began, which turned to the topic of success. The one bear said, Did you hear about Rustam? He's become a famous bear and travels from city to city in a golden cage. He performs to hundreds of people who laugh and applaud his carnival stunts. The other bear sat for a few seconds and looked at the first, and started to weep. That's the end of his poem. In India, it's called the golden chain instead of the golden cage. You understand what I'm saying? So all these things are there, out there, whether it's the pollution or the warfare or or the suffering that's more invisible to us, but that's there around us in the speed and complexity and intensity. And as we go through our day, we might say, well, that doesn't affect us, but it does. And even as we sit down to meditate, all that is there in the cells of our body. And we live in a society that is originally dedicated to the principles of justice and freedom and um, listening to one another's voices in a fair way. 
And yet we see injustice and greed and hatred and racism that are also a part of us. And not just there or here, but everywhere, whether it's the Middle East or West Africa or Iraq or the fact that we're now and have been for a long time exporting so many weapons to so many countries on this earth. Our big export is weapons. Nobody talks about it. We talk about our defense industry, but nobody talks about the fact that we're arming the world and we wonder about human safety. This is carried in us, in our bodies, and in our being. Put it this way. Stress and loneliness may have as much to do with healing as the latest drugs and expensive procedures. Human beings aren't intricate mechanisms whose fuel injection systems can be dispassionately adjusted by medical mechanics. The need for contact, communication, and compassion has been programmed into the functioning of the cells in our immune system, the walls of our coronary arteries, and our very will to live. And it's true individually and collectively. And in one generation, we talked about this, there's been the loss of the Sabbath, whether it's the Muslim holy day on Friday or the Jewish day on Saturday or the Christian day on Sunday or the Buddhist day on full moon and new moon or the Hindu holy day. Just a day where you stop and don't do anything and listen. To meditate is to invite that spirit of deep listening back into our lives, to find a time for it. How to find our way in all this? in these complicated lives. I mean, almost everyone wants to simplify. I do, and I have a lot of trouble. It's weird being a meditation teacher. You think, oh, nice, peaceful life, but I have a teenage daughter and family responsibilities in a big center and all these invitations, and I say no to this one, and they say, well, how about that one? How about with the Dalai Lama? How about with the Dalai Lama at the UN? No, no, please, no. I just want to stay in my home temple. You know, I want to walk and ride my bike and live in Woodacre and not go so far. But it's, you know, the temptation. Just one more thing to do. A little more money, a little more of this which would be good. When really what we long for is just that space to see one another, to breathe, to listen. The moment you leap free, the moon catches you and hugs you in its arms. If only you could stop, all unimaginable joys would be rolled like pearls at your feet. That's from Rumi again. Just stop it. To see there were rainbows this morning over Fairfax, beautiful rainbows. And the, the change of weather is difficult and beautiful and, you know, amazing. The Buddhist teaching is really one of respect and loving-kindness, to take the time to listen to the cycles of our life, of the seasons, of our brothers and sisters around. 
to bring a deep connection. And we long for that connection. We need it on the earth. But how to do it? I don't think it can be done unless we take the time to pray, unless we take the time to stop, unless we look at the leaves falling from the trees in this season, unless we watch the deer on the hillside that are all around us in the land, unless we listen in our own hearts. Let's see. I see meditation then as more than anything else reminding us that we can listen, that we can learn to live in the reality of the present, that we can breathe and let our bodies open and heal, that we can release the tensions that we carry, they can we remem- that we can remember what our hearts most deeply love and value. But you know, to meditate, as you can see, it's not some simple, easy thing, oh, you just get to this peaceful place. What happens is that you meet, what was it, Carl Sandburg's description, the mob within the heart. <laughs> or maybe that's Emily Dickinson. They both knew. Very well, Carl and Emily, the couple. I was a mother caring for my children, but when they got bigger, I looked for something else to do. I wanted to give, but I had some self-doubt. What could I do? I was willing to try something. Then there was a notice in the newspaper. If you love animals, and I did, come volunteer at the zoo. And it clicked. I went. I became a guide there. And then we started the outreach program to bring animals to people who couldn't come to us. We'd bring them birds, mammals, reptiles, the snake we'd show next to last, then we'd end with a dove. We'd take them to nursing homes, hospitals for incurable diseases, children's wards, burn units, psychiatric hospitals, places where people are sick or dying or just lost. They'll never go anywhere again. They've lost interest, given up on life. I was so shocked by that. It hurt me so much. But I witnessed things I never dreamed of when I answered that ad. In one hospital we went to, there was a a group of of boys um, who were constantly urinating, naked as the day they they were born, undressing, running around. I brought two ferrets in. (laughs) One boy came running and yelling, touch, touch. He just wanted to touch the ferret. You had the feeling that he had never touched something in his whole life like that. Then I went into a long-term ward, and a man refused to come out of his room. He was bitter and angry. Shame was in him. He heard there were animals. He heard their sound. He became a little curious. So this time, right away, I said, would you like to touch? Oh, sure, sure, he said sarcastically, with these hands, these diabetic hands, and he thrust them in my face, and there were no fingers left. And then he just looked down at the floor, and I felt terrible. And I said, here then, with your palms. And he began to let us help. And with each animal, he became softer. And for once, there was something beside his illness. And he began to weep. This is so beautiful, he said. I will never forget this day. He became so warm. And a woman in a nursing home with Alzheimer's 
who had been talking only nonsense for years, as long as people could remember. She babbled and played patty cake over and over, and I had an opossum with her. And I said, they're really nature's garbage collectors. And she turned to me and she said, if that's the case, lady, you better tell them to make a union. <laughs> she laughed and everyone was astonished. She was in there, right? So here we are in meditation, and what we're doing is making a relationship with the ferrets, right? And the leopards, and the lions, and the raccoons, and the whales, and the baboons, and the sparrows that live within us. But then, what is the relationship of this personal practice, this willingness to hear and feel and touch that which is our own life? To the universe around us. A question for you. I ask often when one comes to a monastery. Are you in the temple or is the temple in you? Are you in the world or is the world in you? I'll let you chew on that. As we awaken in spiritual life, we begin to notice that it's not really about ideals. You know, it's a lot easier to love a thousand people in your loving-kindness meditation than it is the cranky neighbor next door, not to speak of the people that you live with in your house at certain times. But gradually, there is this natural movement from me and mine and I, the small sense of self, to us, the zoo within, And then us gets bigger, the family and the community and the world around. And the sense of separateness begins to melt. Not because it's supposed to, but because it's not the truth. That love and loving kindness and openness, the things that keep us believing we're separate, dissolve in that deep listening. And it can happen in in the simplest ways. Joanna Macy, this story of talking of working in the temples of Sri Lanka and of the poorest villagers coming, the children coming and wanting to make offerings. She writes about this little girl coming and she writes, of course her family is terribly poor and of course we do not really need the little bit of rice on the betel nut leaf that she offers. But in her giving it, she gets a whole new idea of herself and the world. Just in that tenderness of being willing to receive. If a child gives you something, you should always accept it. Do you understand? It's something important. And children love to do that, no matter how little they have. It's their way of saying, are you in there? Here I am. We're in this together. The more deeply we truly listen, the sense of separation dissolves. We breathe in and out with the rains that have come and with the rainforests of the Amazon and the the temperate rainforests of British Columbia and Washington State. And the sunlight is ours for free, as Hafiz says. Where are you, Hafiz? Reading Hafiz a lot this week. He writes, 
Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. <laughs> Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. You know, Einstein put it this way when he said that the greatest and most important sense, the human sense that we have, is the sense of the mystical. The sense that this human life is surrounded by mystery. And it is. Nobody really understands it. Not the doctors or the physicists or maybe even the poets. They come closest, I think. Um, but nobody can really explain how all those great balls of fire, you know, that hang in the dark night way out there, where did they come from? The Big Bang. Likely story, right? <laughs> As if that explains it. Come on! You know? Nobody knows. The sense of wonder. Mary Oliver's line, when it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the groom taking the world into my arms. And somehow, through the quiet of meditation, through the listening, there comes an expansion of our being from the small sense of self to feel this connectedness. And the sense of what's sacred expands, that it's not just in church or a temple or certain hours. For us to regard with hatred the bomb or the dying seas, or the poisoned air, is a monstrous injustice. It would suggest that we never took seriously the injunction to love. Perhaps we thought all along that Gautama and Jesus were kidding, or that their teachings were meant only for saints. But who do you think they were talking to? That's from Joanna Macy. In an honorable attention, which is what one is asked when one meditates, to bow to all the creatures within, this, within ourselves, there comes a space, an opening beyond reactions, a, a perspective of the rhythms of this life, of joy and sorrow and birth and death. The star at dawn, the flash of lightning, the summer cloud, the echo, a rainbow, a, a phantom, a dream, we see it all arising and passing as that beautiful nun said last week. And paradoxically, as we open and find a greater capacity to be present to all that is within us,
that capacity for presence connects us with the world around us in an intimate and yet deep way. I mean, think about when you come back after a day of hiking in the mountains or walking by the ocean and how much more you are there, present, we are for our children or our colleagues or even the other drivers on the road. You know, there's a little less road rage when you're coming down from the mountains, I hope. (laughs) When we listen, life becomes more precious. It's that simple. During the Gulf War, which I'm sorry to tell you isn't over, because there are still um, hundreds of thousands of children who are at risk in Iraq, even at this time. And other people who are at risk from the insane things that the government of Iraq, that Saddam Hussein is doing. But I'm not sure that the children should be targeted as a response to that. So this was written during the Gulf War. My problem with movies where people get killed, writes the poet Ann Patchett, is that my concentration is broken with the first death. I lack the mental dexterity required to simultaneously mourn and continue to follow a plot line, and I simply lose the plot. It doesn't matter if it's the star or an extra in the crowd scene, I can never distinguish in my heart the difference. So I've fallen behind trying to figure out what's going on in the Gulf War. Oh, I listen to the news and read the papers. I sit in the theater My eyes are on the screen, but I'm not really following the movie anymore because the bit players are starting to get knocked off. And it's there, too, with the Palestinians and the Israelis. When it gets down to one life, the mind achieves a vivid understanding. If I take the deaths one at a time, I notice that Marine Lance Corporal Michael Linderman of Douglas, Oregon, was only 19 and I know what it was like to be 19. And I noticed that there wasn't a standard portrait taken of Marine Private Dion Stephenson of Bountiful Utah, so they used his prom picture. You can see his bow tie. And after you look at these pictures, the war, or any war, becomes difficult to follow, because to be decent, you have to stop and love them and mourn their passing, and there are getting to be so many of them it's impossible not to fall behind. Once you start to think about the dead as individuals, it isn't long before you start to think about the living that way as well. Paradoxically, as we listen and let go of all the busyness and striving, in that letting go comes a connectedness, an intimacy, a presence, because the world is so precious. Like the astronauts who went up, those Russian astronauts, and brought goldfish with them to see how they do in zero gravity. And after three weeks at the space station, the goldfish started to die. Turned out they didn't do very well in zero gravity. And they were furiously calling back and talking and trying to do anything they could to save these three little fish. One of the astronauts said, you know, when I was back home, I would go out and I'd go fishing. I didn't think twice about catching as many fish as I could. 
But here, when you're far away from that blue-green globe, any sign of life is so precious. What we didn't do to try to save those fish. Now, in spiritual life, one can well make a case for two sides of the equation. One side, our stillness informs our actions. And the basic teaching is, don't just do something, sit there, right? Or that passage that I read over and over again from Thomas Merton, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our time. And we know it. I mean... How many civilizations did you learn about in high school? I'm, I'm into high school curriculum these days because of my daughter doing world history. The Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Portuguese, remember that one? You know, that said, well, we own this much of the world, or the Russian Empire, or the Napoleonic Empire, or the Roman, or the Greek, or the Assyrian, or the Mongol, or, you know, the Mughals or whatever it happens to be, and you know how it is. I wouldn't say easy come, easy go. It's probably hard come and hard go, but there they are. There's an empire, and then it's gone. Remember the British Empire? That was in most of your lifetime. It was a really big empire. Now there's just these little kind of foggy islands remembering the empire, right? And one revolution follows another, doesn't it? And often... Um, the ones who get in power just put the other ones in prison, and there isn't a whole lot of uh, improvement. This is from Ruth Carter Stapleton, Jimmy Carter's sister. Whatever we cannot forgive, we are doomed one day to relive. The person who refuses to forgive the gossip eventually becomes a gossip. The one who cannot forgive a betrayal becomes a betrayer. The reason for this is that the inability to forgive a frailty in another person indicates the same lack of mercy for ourselves. So from this perspective, what the world needs is not more food or more oil. I mean, we have grain elevators full of food. We don't need more food. And we could feed every hungry child and every hungry woman and man on this earth with 10% of what the world spends on weapons every year. 10% of the arms budget. So we don't need more food or oil or stuff. We need less greed, less hate, less prejudice, less delusion. And that's the source in the heart, our fear of one another, our fear of life. It's not an easy task. Somebody has to face greed, face anger, face prejudice in their own heart and find freedom. And you know who that person is for the world to transform. You must be the peace you would wish this world to become. You must be the compassion that's needed in the world. It's no use walking anywhere to teach, said St. Francis, unless our walking is our teaching. Another poem from Hafiz. 
he writes about your mother and my mother. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. For your mother and my mother were friends. I know the innkeeper in this part of the universe. Get some rest tonight. Come to my verse again tomorrow. We'll go speak to the friend together. I should not make any promises right now, but I know if you pray, somewhere in this world, something good will happen. God wants to see more love and playfulness in your eyes, for that is your greatest witness to him. Your soul, my soul, once sat together in the beloved's womb playing footsie. Your heart, my heart, are very, very old friends. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you in better living conditions. What a line. So one voice says, it's time for us to sit and find that place of fearlessness and peace and then move out from that into the world. And that the greatest political act you can do is that inner transformation of heart. Nothing else will heal this world. And yet, and yet, today on this earth, all species of jaguar, all species of gorilla, the giant sable antelope, the giant armadillo, three species of kangaroo, all of rhinoceros, five of leopard, thirteen of monkey, all species of orangutan, eight species of whale, six of wolf, twenty of pheasant, seven of gazelle. Each week or month more are added to that list of beings, amazing beings that are dying out on the earth. The ozone hole is getting bigger and global warming is not a theory anymore. You know, the sheep and the cattle and the animals in southern Chile and in New Zealand are getting cataracts from the ultraviolet radiation. The children can't go out and play in some places. The AIDS epidemic in Africa now, it moves from one place to another. You know, how many square miles of rainforest have burned this month in uh, Borneo or in the Amazon. Or the fact that the study of PCBs and other long-lasting pollutants is found in the breast milk of mothers around this country, that the mother's milk has become part of the toxic landfill of our time. Or the children of Iraq, you know, or Sierra Leone. Millions of people who are hungry today, and we can't wait. What to do, how to choose, how to choose our path with heart. Each has the power to affect the world. And I believe that the yogis who sit in caves in the Himalayas and do day and night the prayers of compassion affect this world as much as anyone. For me, it's really quite literal, you know, because I've told many times the story of being on the mountaintop in India with my wife, Liana, when she had the vision of her brother's death. 
and how it happened, and then ten days later getting the telegram saying, very sadly, your brother Paul has died. And everybody hears those stories because it's not a philosophy or an idea to believe. It is the reality. We are connected. So Mahatma Gandhi again put it this way so simply when he said, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives, and therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains, and if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. My teacher Mahagosananda, who is here for our meeting of elders and Buddhist teachers in June with the Dalai Lama, the best of all those pictures, I think, in the back there, on those that show the teachers coming to that meeting. My favorite is the one of the Dalai Lama and Gosananda meeting together. Because each is bowing to the other. And Gosananda is the Gandhi of Cambodia who's done peace marches through the war zones for years and years now. And the Dalai Lama is bowing to him. He knows him very well. He's bowing to the Dalai Lama. And they're each trying to get lower than the other one. <laughs> and if you look at the picture, their heads are nearly touching the ground, and then they touch together. One head touches the other. They bowed so low. It was so beautiful to see. No, no, I want to bow more to you. It's just great. But Gosananda spent 40 years as a monk learning to be a Buddhist scholar. He learned 15 languages, Sanskrit and Pali and Urdu and Hindi and Cambodian and French and English and Vietnamese and... Um, Latin, amazing scholar, and a meditation master. And he lived for all these years, and then most of the elders of Cambodia were killed, and he wasn't, because at the worst time of the war, he was out studying a little outside the country in Thailand. And he went back, and I thought, oh, he's a sweet guy, and he's a scholar. I knew him. He was a friend. And when the time was right, he came out of his cave and just walked into the worst fighting in Cambodia, and said, I will lead peace marches, and I won't stop walking until peace comes. Amazing being. So, what is our path? Sometimes it's the inner path. You know, sometimes it's just teaching one child, or making one garden. This friend who's in our community, who worked for years as a psychologist for Weight Watchers International, the psychology of eating, and was struck by the fact that there are all these people who are trying to diet and lose weight, and then there are all these people who are hungry, started an organization called Dieters Feed the Hungry that has grown worldwide all over, and the people who don't want the food are now giving it to the people who need the food. It's fantastic. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You breathe in and you breathe out. Each has its cycle, the time for stillness and the time to get up and bring it into action. And each of us has our own gift. As an artist or a business person or a teacher or a gardener or a healer or a journalist, or contemplative. What is your way? It cannot be by imitation. Then it's not your gift. You remember what Martha Graham says. 
There is a vitality, a life force that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique, and if you block it, it will never exist through any medium and be lost. It is not up to you to decide or measure the value of your spirit. It is simply up to you to do that one thing that is given to you to do, to keep the channel open. What matters more than anything is the spirit that we bring. We cannot do great things, said Mother Teresa. We can only do small things with great love. This little story, just a few sentences, but a whole image in it. They covered the stranded whale with mud to keep him cool and protect him from the sun and then sprinkled him with water and stroked him and tried to comfort him. Just the taking care of that one whale. And yet I believe that by taking care of one thing, we take care of the whole universe. In meditation, we learn to find that place of our own Buddha nature, the shift of identity that's not just me, but it's us as a reality. And then to bring the power of that spirit through our gift into the world. And sometimes it's time to sit and return to that source, and sometimes it's to get up and dance. In this culture, stillness, quiet, even love, is seen as a weakness, isn't it? Action, you know, strength, killing people, that's power. People forget the real power of love. True love is not for the faint-hearted, says Meher Baba. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until it transforms everyone whom it touches. And so what we're asked to do is to find that place in ourselves that is love and then bring it through our gift back to the earth. And it might be Joanna Macy going to sit with the people outside Chernobyl nuclear reactor and bearing witness to their suffering so that she can tell their story around the world so that it won't happen to other people's children. Or it's my friends and colleagues who work for Mosaic, this organization, Michael Mead, Maladoma Somme, African medicine man and shaman, Luis Rodriguez, who poet who works with youth gangs. And one of the work of Mosaic that we've been involved with is called the Voices of Youth. And it means going into school systems, to detention centers, to um, places where youth are incarcerated, and beginning to let them have a voice, to write poetry, to make art, to tell their voice. And here's the deal, to go in as a group to talk to the principal or the probation officer or the warden or whatever and say, we want to go in and really give your... And they're desperate, you know, because these institutions aren't working and society can't keep locking up more and more of its children. It can't, doesn't work. 
They're desperate. Say, what we want to do is to go and listen to your children and give them a voice. Say, well, I don't know if they need a voice. Well, send us your worst. Send us the ones, the most violent, the most difficult. Oh, you don't want those. I mean, there are girls who, you know, this girl, she hasn't talked for two years. She'll never work with you. This guy, he just, he's angry all the time. Send us the worst ones. Because the principle of the work with Mosaic is to make a space in which the person in the room who is the most in danger has a voice. And then what happens after some days of honesty being read as poems and stories that are told and voices that are true is these youth who suffer incredibly start to write their own story. And the girl who hasn't said a word in two years stands up after three or four days and reads to the principal and to the members of the school community a poem that says, I have been left by everything. I've been left by my alcoholic mother. I've been left by a school that doesn't even want to hear my pain. I've been left by my friends who only want to drop drugs off at my door. I've been left by, and she just writes her poem. And everybody says, whoa, I'm not sure I even wanted to hear this poem. The system, you know what I'm saying? But what makes it work is the protection, that space that meditation makes for us to listen without judgment, to ask for the person in the room who is most in danger to tell their story. And if we listen, like Bonobo listened, then we see that it's not us and them. It's just us. That poem that I read from Hafiz at the very beginning of the night where he writes, Out of a great need we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is the wrong kind of letting go. Listen, The terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. We need one another. So to be awake asks a great honesty and courage of heart from you. It's not a small thing to meditate or to live a spiritual life. And to hear the call or the voice and to recognize when it's time for our gift to go inward to be silent, to listen, or to sit with the dying. The lemon tree in my garden is a bigger influence on my writing than all the poets put together, said Octavio Paz. To see the tree, to reconnect with this earth. The real revolution may be to go out and take a hike. I'm serious. And listen to Mozart and walk in the redwood trees and stop being so civilized. But then sometimes our gift says, work with the prisoners in San Quentin. Teach literacy in the canal. But you know what? I've asked this before. How many people in this room are in some way involved in service, in nursing or hospice or teaching or caring for a... in some form of service whatsoever? Just raise your hand. See? And the ones who didn't raise your hand, you are, but you don't know it. Or you will. It's all right. 
And sometimes it's grand, you know, it's this amazing thing, like my old friend Jim Perkins, who was an activist that went and poured his blood, he took a quart of his blood, and he poured it in the um, navigation system of a nuclear missile that his friends got him into, and then chained himself to the missile and was sentenced to three years in federal prison. He said, fine, he shaved his head and he said, I'm going to be a monk for three years, that's what's asked of me. That's a pretty amazing monastic practice, isn't it? You know? But sometimes it's that letter that says, Marin is in dire need of foster parents to take in one child. We have to listen to our cycles. Is it the time to sit in silence? Is it the time to plant the garden and fertilize it? Is it time to invite your friends in for harvesting or for bigger planting? But without the inner peace, we can't really bring our blessings. The two have to be wedded together. And then, like it says in the Zen ox herding pictures, it shows at the end of this great search for the, for the oxen, taming the oxen in the wild forest and playing the flute and the music, finally the old guy comes walking back and he says, I enter the marketplace with my wine bottle and my staff, and all who I look upon become enlightened. He's happy. He's grinning. He's going into the marketplace and saying, there are blessings on this earth. Join me in these blessings. Take the time to be still and listen. And then in that listening, you will know what's asked of you, what your particular piece is, what you have been put here to do next. And if you're still in the heart, the blessings of your attention and your courage and your compassion will be there in all that you touch. A little poem, and then we'll be finished. Sit for a moment. Let's see. Where is that? Hafiz again, called I Got Kin Everywhere. Plant so that your own heart will grow. Love so God will drink. Ah, I got kin in that body. I should start inviting that soul over for coffee and rolls. Sing, because this is a food our starving world needs. Laugh because that is the purest of all sounds. And then from the Tao, a different expression of the same thing. Rush into action, you fail. Try to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing the project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She has nothing and thus has nothing to lose. What she desires is to unlearn, to open, to listen. She simply reminds people of who they have always been. She cares about nothing but the Tao, and through this she cares for all things. Let's sit for a minute.
and then end our evening with a simple chant, Namo is the word, like Namaste, I bow to the divine within you, or I see you, I bow to that which is sacred. We'll chant Namo nine times, and as you do, as you chant, you can feel what it is time to bow to, to stillness and to action, to those that ask compassion and those that you just want to remember tonight for healing. Then we'll go out into the evening. Hopefully you can carry some of the spirit of stillness and an awakened heart into the week ahead. Namo Harmony.